This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 9. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. Good evening, Matt. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking, and uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. For our listeners, in this episode, we are excited for you to hear from Matt Farber. Matt teaches social studies at Valley View Middle School in Denville, New Jersey. He's an Edutopia blogger and co-host of Ed Got Game on the BAM Radio Network. Matt's a member of the Glass Lab Teacher Network and has playtested for the Institute of Play. He's also a Brain Pop certified educator. Our teachers love Brain Pop. Uh, Matt's a recipient of the Geraldine R. Dodge Teacher Fellowship and was recently awarded a Woodrow Wilson History Quest Fellowship. Currently, Matt is the North Jersey Director for New Jersey Council of Social Studies, a special liaison to ISTE Games and Simulations Network, and an advisory board member to Literary Safari. He holds a master's degree in ed tech from New Jersey City University, where he is currently an ed tech leadership doctoral candidate, as well as an adjunct instructor. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. I seem to wear a lot of hats. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a bio. So it's great to have you spend some time with us this this evening and talk about your work and uh, and your publications. So a couple, couple of interviews ago, we interviewed Warren Berger, who's the author of A More Beautiful Question. So we start off our interviews with this question. Um, uh, he describes a beautiful question as an ambitious and actionable question. What is the beautiful question behind your book, Gamify Your Classroom? What exactly is game-based learning? It's a question I, I find that I'm still um, grappling with. Uh, it seems to be uh, sort of a movement itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, very um, grassroots driven by passionate educators who some of some of whom play games, some of who have whom have children who are deeply engaged in um, games that have fairly clear educational uh, connections like Minecraft, for instance. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it seems to be almost a, a groundswell there of what game-based learning is. And then, of course, you have other variations or flavors of game-based learning like gamification, uh, the goods and bads. Uh, there's game-like learning, game-inspired learning. And what, is, what exactly is it? Um, I, I, I'm pretty well-versed, I think, 
on project-based learning. Uh, I've gotten to know uh, Susie Boss over the years, who does work with the uh, Buck, in um, Buck mm -hmm. Institute of Education. She's an expert of um, project-based learning. And, you know, you go to their website and you can see exactly what project-based learning is. If you want to know exactly what game-based learning is, well, that's mm -hmm. what set me on this journey of writing a book. So in your mind, what makes a game? What's your vision for gaming and in terms of teaching and learning and playing? Well, in my mind, I'm, I'll be borrowing lots of definitions of what a good game is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would have to say a good game is a series of meaningful choices, which I think either Sid Meier from Civilization said. I think he said that. I don't want to miscredit him. I for Civilizations. <laughs> yes. So it's a, it's a series of meaningful choices. Uh, there are a lot of exceptions to what games are. It's been defined as um, having a quantifiable goal, except games don't always have a quantifiable goal. You can, pl you can play um, Minecraft or World of Warcraft or an online MMO like that for a while, and it's really a persistent virtual world. So when you shut off your computer or, or um, you know, Xbox or whichever, the game is still continuing even when you're not there. And you may just, your goal might just be to socialize. It may mm -hmm. not be necessarily to win. So it's really tough. So what I, I like to see it as is uh, a series of meaningful choices, uh, which is something to uh, keep in mind when, 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 you do, when teachers decide to, um, to gamify lessons. Uh, it can't just simply be to take um, a series of, I don't know, educational videos to assignments to homework and then um, – scaffold them up, that is not necessarily a meaningful choice. Also important from a Vygotskyan perspective is that um, games must challenge learners and give them the freedom to, uh, and space as it were, to, um, to play, to feel that they can explore the rules, explore what they can and cannot do. Um, and this is borrowing from Bedrova and Leong, who wrote the Tools of the Mind curriculum for early childhood education, which is based on Vygotsky's work. And um, play creates the zone of proximal development. So if you don't have enough freedom or play, or if, even if a game is set out to teach you some sort of content, um, it may be still too restrictive. Or a free game like you know, like Minecraft, a big open sandbox, might become too restrictive because of the teacher implementing it. So mm -hmm. you need freedom to play around, and you need meaningful choices. So choices and freedom to play in that sandbox. And, and you mentioned that Minecraft is a sandbox. What do you mean by that? Well, it's an open world game. It's a, well, it's not quite an open world game, I guess. An open world game could be like Assassin's Creed where you can move around the map and make decisions and choices, uh, which is also very meaningful. But uh, in a sandbox, you can go in creative mode and you mm -hmm. can build and make things. There are other sandboxes out there. Disney Infinity is one example. You could build you know, a racetrack using virtual toys in a toy box. Or um, you know, Nintendos, Amiibos. Uh, there's also like Contraction Contraption Maker, which is a physics sandbox where you can build things. Um, it's 
Uh, Sean Dickers, who's a professor out in the Midwest and he's done a lot of work with games learning and society, he, he's described Minecraft as uh, basically a blank piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a sheet of paper where, you, where children can really feel empowered. It is, it is amazing. The game is amazing. I have a 12-year-old son, and he could just be on there for as many hours a day as I would allow him and play something different every hour and create something different um, with a different group of kids every hour. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, that's something important also to note, which I came across in my book research, was uh, the, the writing of uh, Peter Gray. Peter Gray was uh, referred to me by Bernie DeCoven, who um, is a real national expert of play. He's a big influence on um, Eric Zimmerman's work. He wrote the book Rules of Play with Katie Salen, and Katie Salen co-founded the Institute of Play in Questler in New York. Um, what what um, Peter Gray's work, and he's got an excellent book that came out, I think, last year or the year before, Free to Learn, is that children in the 21st century aren't given enough freedom to play on their own. So, you know, many will turn to devices and they're playing with friends because they're being shuttled around from soccer practice to basketball practice to karate to this to that, you know. So to a parent, it may look like they're just staring at screens, but as you point out, they are, but they're playing with friends. I mean, I've sat down with my iPad and my son's on his iPad and we'll play Minecraft together. So it's interesting to hear you, uh, bring these concepts of gaming to life by, by talking about some examples. So we'll look forward as we go through this interview, hearing more about how, how those uh, concepts do come to life. But in your, in your research for your book, you certainly talked to a boatload of people. Um, and one of those people that, that you mentioned uh, was Carnegie Mellon's Jesse Shell. And th- there's something that was said there that uh, really intrigued me. And, and it was about saying that school is a game, albeit a badly designed game. How do you think uh, we should think about redesigning schools to be like a well-designed game? Well, um, Jesse Schell's been very you know, generous with his time. Um, you know, he's certainly a leader in the field of, um, of designing experiences. Uh, this is something that uh, Kurt Squire wrote about a decade ago, and he's a well-regarded academic in the field, that games are designed experiences, and players of games understand while they play a a good game that they are playing through a design experience. Jesse Schell got a start, uh, well, actually, originally got a start at the school where I teach. um, I teach at Valley View Middle School, which is where he went went to middle school there. So one of those small world things. <laughs> Connections, <huh? laughs> Yeah. Then uh, after our school, you know, decades ago, he went to um, work at Disney as an Imagineer. Hmm. And, and um, I'm not sure if you've read the last lecture or your mm-hmm. listeners are familiar with the last lecture from mm-hmm. uh, Randy Pausch. Mm-hmm. So they were friends and uh, Randy and Jesse worked together as Imagineers and Randy um, brought Jesse up to Carnegie Mellon where Shell Games is located. Mm. This summer, in fact, uh, I was a speaker along with many others at the um, Serious Play Conference, which was held at Carnegie Mellon. And there was even a, um, an event at Shell Games headquarters. And you could tell that um, the whole staff of Shell Games understood the concept of design experiences. Everybody was at a spot, at a station, 
throughout the whole uh, reception, making sure and attending to everyone that everyone was having an optimal experience. So to me, that's what school really should be. School is a uh, place where the, the students should be what the experience is, is designed to engage about. Uh, bringing students in as um, co-designers and participatory designers of their learning is very meaningful. Uh, we were talking today in my class about um, Japanese shoguns and Japanese generals. And one of my students in sixth grade told me about a conquest game in Pokemon where it's all generals. So I went to the Pokemon website and I saw all these historical generals and I asked him about playing it. He told me about his DS and then I, we had a deep discussion about what would be a good way to use this in the classroom. Mm. How can we teach about this? Compare and contrast the two versions. So bringing students into the conversation is, I think, very important. It's part of that design experience. Mm. Tapping into their, their personal passions and interests. Absolutely. Because when you can bring that into a school setting, then you've won. Uh, another example, um, last month I was up in Toronto, I was doing some uh, research up there, and I went out to a board game cafe with a friend of mine, Paul DeVarsi, who is another Edutopia blogger and Mindshift blogger and game using teacher. And uh, we went to uh, this place called Snakes and Lattes. <laughs> that it's sounds a, like fun. Yeah, it's a play on Snakes and Ladders, which is what the rest of the world calls Shoots and Ladders. Uh-huh. <laughs> which, which, uh, which I mentioned in my book, is, at, is originally an educational game. It mm -hmm. teaches concepts of Jainism. Uh, in, in India, for instance, there are less, um, less ladders than shoots, which illustrates that it's easier, it's harder to do good than to do poorly or to sin. Anyway, we went to Snakes and Lattes, and it's a board game cafe, and there are many of them sprouting up. New York City has them, Boston has them. And this was right by the University of Toronto. And to me, it struck me just the other day, literally two days ago, I realized, wow, this is a great educational model. You go in, you sit down, and the waiter will ask you, you know, if you want coffee or whatever, and he'll ask you what kind of games you want to play. There's a library of games in the wall. So we, we said, you know, two people, the time we wanted to spend, what kind of games we wanted to play. Then he brings over a selection of a few games. One is called Cacao, where it's set in, you know, in uh, Mesoamerica and you're trading cacao and you're putting down tiles. And then the other one was Forbidden Desert, which is a cooperative game from like, uh, Matt I Lee know Tom. that one. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, you know, it, they're both very difficult to play. So he explains how to play the one that we wanted to play first. And then he walks away. And if we need any help, you know, we put our hand up and he'll come back. If we need more coffee, he comes back. And it's a whole library. And I'm thinking to myself, this is really what an optimal classroom really is. You know, you have students sitting in groups. You could, in theory, have everything, not packaged as board games, of course, but different types of material where students have choice or maybe you, you give them a menu of certain amount of items that they have to go through. And they choose, the teacher helps them with other people, get going on some concept that's deeply engaging. And then, you know, if the student has any questions, then they can ask. So there you have choice as well, choice and meaning. Sure, that makes a lot of sense for, for our kids. Certainly, and certainly might, something we value. And you might notice I didn't say anything about points or badges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, that's that's interesting. Or winning. I mean, Forbidden Desert, that's one that you you have to play cooperatively, right? That's one that you right. win by working together on. Yes, and we lost. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about those games, how can games help students learn the valuable skills that we're looking for and, um, you know, those soft skills, the systems thinking, problem solving, grit, or collaboration? Well, any student that plays games already knows those skills. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of schools and lessons um, really uh, matching up with that. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Forbidden Desert, cooperative game, you have to work together, right? Uh, last year, and then I did it again this year, but last year, for the first time, I brought in Pandemic, which is a, another type of board game. And it's about balancing the system of the world, trying to stem uh, disease outbreaks from around the world by getting rid of these disease cubes. So uh, I made that part of a lesson on the Columbian Exchange, where, where the concept of balancing an interconnected system, which is one of the uh, more powerful things games can teach, um, becomes the focal point of the, or the anchor point of the Columbian Exchange unit. And then I had stations like you would normally have around a classroom. So station, a brain pop activity on the Columbian Exchange, PBS learning media activity, which, which uses video and text, and it results in an evidence-based writing assignment, which is you know Common Core and Park, and it's also good social studies, good writing, and then um, playing Pandemic. So the, the game is just mixed in with all of the other activities. Uh, when students play the game, they have to write journal entries from the point of view of the role that they're in. In the game, you get different roles, so what that does is extends the role beyond the game itself, outside of the circle of the game, into, um, into other concepts so they can really take more ownership of the experience. So in that case, the game is teaching uh, all of those concepts, if you choose a really good game, of course. There are games that aren't really good games, <laughs> that aren't, <laughs> I don't want to like pick on brands, but there <laughs> <laughs> I love the game right games. I think those many of them are really fun and are are different. Are really different. I think yeah. that desert is. Well, game right games are are fantastic. So we we got. Uh, I have a five year old, right? So mm -hmm. we have um, Sushi Go, which is a game right produced mm -hmm. game, and you know it's a card passing game. So it's quick. You say Sushi Go. You put down one card. And you try to build sushi rolls, basically, with pictures. And then you pass your entire hand of cards to the next player. Um, there's another game called Soro, Art of the Path, which is a board game where you put down tiles. And all the tiles' lines connect. You get this little stone, and you have to move your stone. If you or other player stones go off the board, you or they lose. And again, both of those games, that and Sushi Go, are for children, I think, eight plus, but our five-year-old plays. And he plays with us. Uh, and he's learning things like, you know, strategy, but he's also learning that there are multiple solutions to, to problems, not just one answer to one problem, like filling in a bubble or clicking a box on a test. Sure. And a good game engages people of different ages, right? Right. Well, it engages them with social mechanics, so they're able to talk about the experience together, play together. And in my son's case, he's playing above his head. He's as Vygotsky says, he's playing with us. He's sitting at the adult table playing grown-up games, even though he's five. 
So give us a glimpse into your own personal classroom. How do you gamify your classroom? Sure. Um, I've had some trial and error, first of all. So um, again, I, I try to use the model of how games are created, which is what I wrote about, which became an uh, teaching as an iterative design science in my book, kind of morphed that way. And uh, that's, what, that's what teaching is. Your lesson plans are your design document. Your students are your are your um, who you're designing for. Your lessons are it's are basically, or the curriculum itself can be looked at as a design challenge. And you want to prototype, which is a lesson plan. And teachers can't be a. This is interesting too. I will say this: teachers can't be afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. The whole free, freedom or you know fail forward and all of that with students. It also has to include the teachers in that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're writing your objectives on the board and you're living in, in the trepidation <laughs> that an administrator is going to walk in and wonder why you went off plan a little bit, mm. it's okay. You know, you may just say to an administrator, you know, I'm trying something new. So if you pop in, it may not work. You know, kids mm-hmm. are involved in the conversation. Bring the kids in. You, t- you know, the kids should know that they're play testing or user testing a new lesson. And you want to know how well it's going to work for the next year. So I try to treat treat as many lessons as possible like that. I don't have students sitting in rows. I, I last year I um, uh, as an Edutopia blogger we went to an editorial summit and I, I was talking to a uh, Nick Provenzano, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he had an amazing blog post on Edutopia about ditching the teacher desk. So that's the first thing I did in August. I don't have a desk. I have a little cart with a laptop and you know, I have an iPad. I don't really need to sit anywhere specific. I can grade papers at a student's desk on a prep. Most of it's digital anyway, right? So um, students sit in, in like pods, like in groups of four basically. There's no front of room. I, also, I make sure that as many lessons as possible are fun and engaging first. Uh, interestingly, I had a, uh, I don't this is, this is just a coincidence, but our behaviorist was in our building last week, and she visited my classroom to observe a student. And then after the class, she lingered in my classroom, and she mentioned how my room was set up and how engaged the students were and how there were no behavioral issues or, or anything that she was expecting to see. And game design companies, I found in research, and many of the best experts out there like Jane McGonigal, for instance, who wrote uh, Reality is Broken, have, uh, have their advanced degrees in behavioral psychology. Game design companies will bring in behavioral psychologists to optimize the experience that players will have, not to keep in line students that might you know, not want to sit in rows all day, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of it. Um, a specific lesson I, I would like to share so one involved this game called One Night Ultimate Werewolf. And this is going to be an Edutopia post that comes out in um, January. Uh, this is a, and again, I don't, for me, it doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's a, a paper-based game, you know, a tabletop game, or a video game. Uh, I make no discrimination as long as it's good learning. It doesn't even have to be a game per se. Uh, you know, I've had students go through a storyboard activity where they have to pitch a scene that should have been in Pocahontas to be more accurate. And then I show them, you know, um, 
a video clip from Pixar to show what a pitch looks like to, to an audience to keep it authentic. Or recently, we did viral videos about the 13 colonies. We watched a TED Talk about what viral videos on YouTube actually are, and then they had choice to create a viral video using a variety of different applications of their choosing, right? So that's game-like. Uh, an example of game-based one was One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Uh, and that game, which is based on a camp game called Werewolf, which goes back to another game called Mafia. I don't know if you played any of those. <laughs> I have not. No. I have not either. But Mafia was uh, is pretty well reviewed in different books as far as social gaming goes. Basically, in, in Mafia and Werewolf, um, you players close their eyes, choose cards first, then they close their eyes, and some players are werewolves or mafia, and some are villagers. And then there's day night, day rounds and night rounds where you open your eyes and close your eyes. One Night Ultimate Werewolf is from Ted Auspach, and um, it came out within the past couple of years. It only takes 10 minutes to play, perfect for a classroom. You can have three to 10 players, perfect for a classroom. The iPad app, which is free, or any mobile device app can moderate the game. It runs the game. So the students don't have to learn anything of how to play the game. It's very fast to learn. Everybody looks at their card. You either are a werewolf or you're a villager. And villagers have different actions, um, which I'll get into in a second. What happens is that you, everybody closes your eyes. That's what the app says to do. And then one by one, first werewolves open their eyes and look around to see if there's another werewolf or not. And then they get to perform certain actions, like looking at other cards. The um, troublemaker, great role, they open their eyes and they get to switch two players' cards. What that means is the werewolves, when everybody wakes up at the very end of the game, everybody wakes up, opens their eyes. The werewolves may not even know if they're for, sh for sure a werewolf or not. The last five minutes of the game is discussion. So you have to accuse each other of being a werewolf or a villager. Um, you team up on each other. You try to uh, throw a little suspicion on other people. It's a social deduction game. Mm -hmm. And then everybody votes. Uh, I read about the game also in, uh, in The Atlantic as a discussion strategy game. And it's really fun. And there's a high amount of replayability. When kids play it, they want to play it again. Uh -huh. So I used it because it meets with common core standards, of course, of discussion mm -hmm. and uh, evidence, right? But I also used it because I wanted to teach about the systems, the interconnected systems of a Puritan village where the Salem witch trial took place. So students played, and then I asked them about how they felt being accused how they felt accusing others. How did it feel to be falsely accused? That was part one of the lesson. Part two, I consulted with um, some people at Institute of Play about making a game about this. And um, I also had a Skype conversation with Ted Auspach, the designer of the game, asking him how he would make a version about the Salem Witch Trials. So first, my students uh, spent two days on a game jam, which is making a very fast game uh, in about two days, even if it's not good. It wasn't even for a grade, just so they can go through the exercise. So they had to make a game about an emotion, and they chose emotions. So you have to make a game that will make you feel jealous, make a game that will make you feel um, happy, make a game that will make you feel uh, confused, so that they knew the, the design experience comes first, the emotion. Then the next week, they had to use 
Werewolf as a centerpiece of making a game about the Salem Witch Trials. So what they did was they used resources which I gave them, which were over grade level. I gave them The Crucible, which you wouldn't normally read in seventh grade. I gave them um, The uh, Scarlet Letter. I gave them a whole mix of different textbook materials and other materials to work with. And they designed cards, and they had to think about, okay, what would... Um, you know, what would Sarah Good do? What would Abigail Williams do? You know, she kind of started some of this. So maybe she would be like the troublemaker. So they had to recreate the game. Some of them added mechanics, uh, such as arguing your way out of being falsely accused. Uh, some added the John Hale card, which means you have to force other people to reveal their cards before they want to. Because that's what he did. He accused people of being witches. Um, in the end, students wanted me to play their versions of the games, and I didn't want to. I wanted them to have as complete ownership as possible on their experiences. They went through the whole step of prototyping it, testing it. By the end, you can hear them say, who wants to play test our game? And they would test each other's games. <laughs> and more fun playing that than the actual store-bought game. That sounds fun. Yeah. So the whole thing is a whole experience. And they, they have a deep knowledge of who people are in the Puritan village, what went wrong, how it felt. The experience comes first, then the content. I love how your description represents all those things that you talked about earlier. Um, not only the content, but also the systems thinking and the other sort of 21st century skills that, that we want our kids to have. And you, the way that you describe that, it just sounds like a really exciting place, your classroom. You also, um, you are involved with Brain Pop and you, you talk in the, in the book or you write in the book about um, a visit there. And uh, can you talk a little bit about Brain Pop and this Game Up platform? Sure. Game Up is their um, is their platform of games you can play on their on Brain Pop. Um, it's uh, most of the games are free. Things change all the time, of course. But as far as I know, they're free. Uh, the videos are the subscription part. The games you play for free. There's a Snap Thought tool, which I think is is just fantastic. So rather than just relying on um, on analytics that you would see how students progress in a game. Because, you know, the way games are leveled, you could see how a student is, is progressing in a game because to get to the next level, you have to master what you're doing first. So there's something called the Snap Thought tool. And you could just click a little button, if you're logged in and have an account, you click a little camera icon, the students do, and uh, it takes a screenshot of the page, and then you have a few sentences and the student can write a little reflection about what decisions they made, what problems they solved, and then they just click submit when they're done and you get a report right in your, um, in your class roster and brain pop. So it's, a, it's an excellent qualitative assessment tool built right into it. Mm -hmm. uh, it lowers a lot of barriers for teachers who want to get games into their classroom. Yeah, it certainly seemed in your description in the book that it would be a good on-ramp. Uh, for teachers that are interested in this to to tap into that resource. It really is. And um, another thing that struck me about BrainPop, uh, and there are other companies like this, like Glass Lab, Filament Games. Uh, one thing with BrainPop is that they test early with students and teachers. Mm -hmm. They visited my classroom uh, once. Uh, they, they've given um, versions of games pre-release 
We take surveys about how the experience is and how it could be better and that sort of thing before it comes to market. Mm-hmm. Not an aftermarket game that says, okay, this is educational. <laughs> Let's see how you can wedge this in. It's that design thinking starting with the user experience. Exactly right. So you've identified a couple of barriers, you know, the how to get started, having a climate of risk-taking in your district and your administrator supporting you. Um, what are some other common barriers for teachers who want to start gamifying learning in their classroom? Uh, I think a barrier, a barrier is not risk-taking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a barrier is saying that I'm using um, a quiz-style game, and that's enough of game-based learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm using something that requires devices. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But I don't, I don't know if that's the same deep experience as Pandemic or One Night Ultimate Werewolf or Minecraft, taking, taking a, um, a competitive quiz and that's that. Yeah. There's a place for it, but I don't think that's where you say, this is great, it looks like good teaching, but it really isn't because, you know, even games like Jeopardy, you know, Bingo, it's very, sure. it's very um, teacher-centered, not student-centered. And the idea of those lower-level questions, and in Pennsylvania, we look at Webb's depth of knowledge questions and thinking about what you just mentioned there with, with Jeopardy, the recall questions, a very exactly. different experience of what you're describing. Right. Trivia always seems like the, the right thing to do, but trivia is just that. It's, you know, it's identified. It's very low on, on that. And what I've been finding is that Game-based learning differs from project-based learning sometimes in that project-based learning, you get the project and you, you know, it's, it's, it's an awesome way to teach. And oftentimes, good project-based learning is very game-like. Uh, one thing game-based learning can do really effectively is uh, put you in an experience first. So an example is um, Jamestown Colony. Uh, at first, I would think that when I, I have Minecraft EDU in the classroom, so I can run a server and I have eight licenses. So students in their groups can sit together and they can, maybe we could all build out Jamestown Colony, right? Seems like what you would do. That seems like the teacher mindset. In my, my first inclination was, let's all build Jamestown as a fort, right? But I, I, I had a conversation with uh, Marion Malmstrom, who is um, an early onboard teacher for Minecraft, and uh, she, she has an a excellent blog, also Follow the Learning. We were talking, and she said, maybe not take that route. Maybe use other parts of Minecraft. So what I did was I put all the students in survival mode, not in creative mode, and they, they were a little off-put by that. And I said, okay, you're on this island. I put them on an island. They have some pre-made islands in uh, Minecraft EDU. And I put them on an island and I said, okay, you have to survive. You just got to Jamestown. You have to build some sort of fortification and, you know, survive. And it was on, it was on um, survival, but on an easy or peaceful version of it. And then about 20 minutes went by and I, I ramped up the difficulty of the game because I'm in like, I'm teacher in God mode, basically, because <laughs> I, can, I can control it all. You know, it's teacher as game master role is really <laughs> So I made it nighttime and I made it difficulty as hard as it can get and all the creepers and zombies came out and some kids uh, characters died 
you get respawn. It's Minecraft. And um, those that did not, those that did listen early on and build structures, were were like, oh, we're fine. We're just staying inside. We're okay. So we did that first. Then we did the Jamestown unit because then they already had then they had the experience of what it's like to be in danger of not surviving. Mm-hmm. We have that now experience, that shared experience where I can reference it. And I think that is really where the difference of taking some risk with bringing games in the classroom, going outside of, of your comfort of what you think it should be to um, keeping it as student-centered and experience-centered as possible. Yeah, so uh, to me, gamifying is um, that, bringing the experiences in. Um, quests are great to have, and badges can be fun, but that's all secondary. Just like when you're playing a video game, that's secondary. I was playing um, Rise of the Tomb Raider before on Xbox, before our, our call here, and I'm not playing to get whatever uh, achievements or awards that the, uh, the Xbox pops up. I'm just playing for the fun of exploration. So like I said earlier, I really enjoyed reading your book and spending some time looking through a lot of the bits that you have at the end of each chapter where you have uh, lesson plan ideas, games, and other resources. So in our district, I think this idea of gamifying the classroom is pretty new. So what are one or two resources, one or two ways that you would suggest that teachers access to to sort of get an an on-ramp to this idea of gamifying the classroom of all those resources and and lesson plan ideas that you shared what would be one or two that you could recommend for teachers just wanting to get started in this sure great question i would say take uh, uh, an approach where you have learning centers in your classroom and make one of them a game that's an interesting idea okay so the others could be traditional the others could be really anything, but make one of them a game and make one of them about making or changing or modding an existing game. Mm. And it can be simple. Uh, one of the one of the best ones I've used is headbands. Uh-huh, I know that one. <laughs> it's, it's like, this is like the holiday season, but it's normally about $10 or $15. And, you know, it's like reverse charades. So you put the plastic band around your head. There's Disney version. There's a whole bunch of different versions. And, you know, I've had my students make a deck of Revolutionary War figure versions. So and they, they fit a standard size index card. It's a social game. You draw the card. You have to know who the people or whatever concept you're trying to teach. You have to know what it is uh, to play well in the game. And you sit in a circle and you look silly with a little... You know, <laughs> Like, this could be a great PD activity for us, Randy, to, to get the ball rolling. I don't know what we'd put on the what we'd put on the cards. We'd have to come up with something pretty creative, but nothing like having our leaders model the way. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Lucas uh, Gillespie, he has uh, he 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 has a lot of great resources also for gamifying PD, and uh, he was recently on uh, our uh, BAM radio show. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, he uses 3D Game Lab, which is now called Wesley. So basically, you know, you get different PD activities, and it really all comes down to choice. What do you want to learn? Yeah, we'll link that um, podcast in the show notes. Um, I already found that one, and I think people will be interested in hearing that as well. So wrapping this up, Matt, 
you know, we start at the beginning of the segment asking, you know, what question was driving this, this book and your interest, and we'd like to wrap it up by asking you now, what beautiful questions are you currently thinking about? My beautiful question I'm thinking about is my uh, chapter five data analysis <laughs> chapter, <laughs> dissertation. Uh-huh. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> it's like almost all there, but, you know... <laughs> Well, we're looking forward to seeing that. And we'd like to thank Matt for joining us. Um, There are are a lot of resources that Matt has shared, which we will link in the show notes. If you want to learn more about his work, you can visit MatthewFarber.com. You can also follow Matt on Twitter, at Matthew Farber. Um, We do have some teachers, and we're looking at the book, Gamify Your Classroom, A Field Guide to Game-Based Learning, New Literacy and Digital Epistemologies, which is available on Amazon. We'll add that to the link. And you can also learn more at um, bamradionetwork.com slash learning, and we'll link that PD um, podcast, PD and gaming podcast there. This January, watch out for Matt's upcoming Edutopia post on game-based learning, One Night Ultimate Werewolf. I definitely want to check that one out. Heading to Amazon to order that one now. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Uh, We brought it to a party recently, a holiday party, and uh, it's just... It seems a little weird because here's a game where we're going to accuse each other of things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what more more do you want? (laughs) Well, this has been a very interesting chat with Matt Farber about gaming and something that uh, I'm not really familiar with, but now I feel like after our conversation, I've learned a lot and I'm really interested in learning some more. So thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Each episode, we leave with a couple of questions for us to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions, how might you gamify your classroom? How would teaching and learning change? And how will you start? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org. Look for season two, episode nine. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do so, that'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Have a great evening. Thank you so much. Bye, Matt. Thank you. See you later. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.